beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And in fact, for the month of August, we're going to be talking about how our political ancestors during times of transition may have passed on to us, either uh, consciously or unconsciously, and what we have inherited as modern Vermonters. And I think, Emily, it's pretty fair to say we're hoping that in kind of going back to some of these readings and these inaugural addresses from these former governors, that maybe as the future ancestors ourselves, we may learn from the past so we can better shape the future. I think absolutely. So well said. I think one of sort of the driving um, stories in both of our lives, Olga, Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons that we enjoy doing this so much together is that if we can name a story or a pattern, we have a much better opportunity to shape it, to move beyond it, to sort of like act with will upon the world. Um, And so I think we've both spent most of our careers just trying to like name the thing so that we can figure the thing out because you can't figure it out unless you name it. And this is a really fun opportunity to name some of our history. Thank you. And, you know, last week, if folks tuned in, Emily Kornheiser, uh, who's one of three reps from Brattleboro. Thank you, regular contributor, Emily. Uh, And I talked, you know, we talked about how we came to this um, Thomas Chittenton's inaugural address and farewell address as really cold and how it showed us how much we still need to learn about our own history. But I was thinking about that this week, and I'm kind of glad to a certain extent we're coming to these pieces cold, Emily, without like this huge historical background, because for me, it also reminds me in our work. So often you and I work on a project or a topic or something for a long time, and we have all this background context, and we forget that so often the people we serve, whether it's our readers or it's our constituents, they may not always have that context. Mm. And I think there's a vulnerability in that. Um, and so sometimes I, I, it's just a good reminder for us in the work we do that... Um, people come to things when they come to them and they don't always have the context. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, even when we um, listen to inaugural addresses today, you know, like when I'm sitting in the house chamber and the governor is giving his speech, um, I'm always struck afterwards when I'm sort of unpacking it with other colleagues. I'm like, did you get that reference? Did and they're like, you know, and sometimes people like have 20 more than I do. And sometimes people haven't, um, didn't have the background for much of it. So even in current, right, that happens all the time. So even with folks who are deeply involved. So who are we going to learn about today? We are learning today. We're going to hear the, uh, I believe I chose the 19, the 1862 inaugural address of Governor Frederick Holbrook who was born in 1813. This is information from the National Governors Association. He's born in 1813 in Connecticut, but then uh, in his adult life moved to Brattleboro, had no idea. Uh, and hometown he died, boy. Yes, hometown boy. He died in Brattleboro in 1909. I guess he's also buried here. He served as governor from 1861 to 1863. He was a Republican. And in his lifetime, He served as a captain for, and I believe it was in Connecticut, a state militia company in Connecticut. Uh, He was a farmer when he moved to Brattleboro. He wrote a number of agricultural articles, as well as kind of worked around machine equipment, agricultural machinery, trying to improve that. He was a state senator as well, and a member of the Agricultural Committee, and uh, urged Congress to found a National Agricultural Bureau. So he was one of the voices behind that movement. Now, here's something I thought as a tax wonk, you would find interesting, Emily. When he was governor, of course, it was the time of the American Civil War. 
and states had civil war related expenses. And so he came up with an initiative. Uh, he worked with the legislature to pay half of the state's civil war expenses through direct taxation. And then the other half through state bonds that would be paid off by future generations. War bonds. Exactly. And doesn't that fit with our, our you know, what are we inheriting versus what are we creating? Mm -hmm. uh, I love that. And under his uh, leadership, Vermont became one of the first states to provide uh, hospitals for soldiers. And um, he he made a suggestion to President Lincoln, who followed the suggestion, I guess, about um, creating a, a way for people to volunteer for the Civil War, not just be drafted. Um, I, I don't really fully understand what that means, but I can imagine that was significant at the time. Again, that's mm -hmm. me coming cold to to a piece of information. Uh, but I found the the paying off of the expenses something you might find interesting. Thank you, I do. So would you like to kick off our reading of Frederick Holbrook's inaugural address? Sure. Do you want to, we didn't figure this out before we went on. Do you want to take turns on paragraphs, two paragraphs and switch, whatever feels like a good vibe, stop. What do you think? Let's, um, we can do every other paragraph, but I would appreciate it if you would take over some of the listed items. Okay. Um, that. That I would appreciate if you would if you would do that. Okay. So Tuesday, October 10th, 1862. Gentlemen of the Senate and House of Representatives. In the present august and momentous crisis in the affairs of our country, the strength, the wisdom and forecast of man are wholly inadequate to save us and our institutions. And how fitting, therefore, that we seek direction from the eternal mind the source of all power and knowledge, imploring his counsels to enlighten and his providence to guide us. Let us remember that while the Almighty may permit the spirit of discord suddenly to enter and scourge a whole nation with cruel war, it is he also who, after correcting a people, restores their wasted land, brings peace and prosperity out of war and devastation. Viewing the condition of Vermont during the past sad year, we perceive that we have occasion for profound gratitude to Almighty God for preserving us from the blight of war within our own territory, for the general pre prevalence of health, the bountiful harvests, and the prosperity of our industrial interests, for the absence of all tendencies to disorder in the popular mind, and for the pre prevalent spirit of patriotism and self-sacrifice which has so universally characterized our people and led them cheerfully to bear every burden which it has been necessary for them to assume on behalf of their country and the rights of mankind. It is gratifying to realize that each and every call of our country in her hour of peril, thousands of the young men of our state have willingly and eagerly seized arms and have gone or are going forth to battle for the union and to drive back the surges of rebellion. Their valor on every field and in every situation in which they have been placed rivals that of the early heroes of Vermont, justifies their noble origin and proves that the race has not degenerated. It is now, as of old, capable of the most heroic and manly deeds and may be relied upon in every emergency. Any language I can employ is too feeble to speak their praise, but I may say that it has been demonstrated and is in high quarters admitted that for steadiness, reliability, courage, and endurance, the Vermont troops are not excelled by those of any state or country. We should gratefully remember the patriotic devotion manifested by those who, unable to bear arms and endure the hardships and fatigues of the soldier, have nobly aided and encouraged others to do so, contributing liber liberally to their of their means to provide for the brave volunteers. The lasting thanks of every patriot are due to the women of Vermont for their devotion to country and so freely giving up their husbands, brothers, and sons for the struggle and their sympathy and zeal in furnishing in such variety and abundance the articles of their handiwork and the delicacies indispensable to the comfort of camps and hospitals 
into the alleviation of the sufferings of sick and wounded soldiers, lonely and far from kindred and home. Thus will it ever be with Vermont to the end of the war. She will never falter nor look back, but will press forward until, if need be, her last dollar is expended and her last son falls, upholding in his dying grasp the flag of our union and with his last breath ejaculating a benediction upon his country. Of the many questions of public interest which required the attention of the legislature, none are more important in the present crisis than those relating to the finances of the state. I refer you, gentlemen, to the report of the state treasurer for the full details of the financial transactions of the past year and of the standing of the state finances generally. From this report, I gather the material to make the following statement. Dear listeners, Olga thought we should perhaps summarize this because it would be too boring for all of you, but I have so much faith in your interest in the boring that I recommended that we read this section aloud, but I will attempt to summarize it when completed. Balance the receipts for the fiscal year ending September 1st, 1862 have been as follows. Different fiscal year than we have now. Balance in treasury, September 1st, 1861, 36,500. They do their commas weird, don't they? I think probably it can't be 36 million, $36,517.30 received on state bonds of 1861 issued since September 1st, 1861. So that would be state bonds issued in the last year, 401,000. Gosh, I feel very confused about these numbers. Received on state tax. 538,000, I'm rounding folks, received on state tax on foreign bank stock, around 3,000, received from sundry state and county officers, judge of probate, et cetera, 21,445. Balances, so that's all the revenue of the state. Balances remaining in treasury due for allotments and credits of officers and soldiers in service. 57,277. Received of J.W. Stewart, financial agent from the U.S. Treasury in part payment for advances by the state in raising and furnishing troops for the service. 123,000. Received of military claims commissioners from U.S. Treasury in part payment for said advances somewhere between 152,000 and 275,000. Credit from all other sources due, 110,359. So that is a sum of 1,442,509. Making in all the sum of the disbursements for the fiscal year ending September 1st, 1862 have been as follows. For military expenses incurred by my predecessor, 273,000, debentures, general assembly and council of censures, 29,000, salaries for state officers, judges, probate, state's attorneys, 32,000, court and auditors orders, 103,000, state pay of $7 per month, the soldiers in service, 446,000, that's a lot of soldiers. On order of present executive, I do believe this is the person who's speaking, the present executive. Okay. For recruiting equipment, et cetera, of new regiments and various supplies for old regiments, such as rubber blankets, tents, and medical aid, 104,000. State pay of $7 per month to soldiers from date of enlistment to muster, 57,000. Claims allowed by commissioner on claims outstanding, somewhere between 25,000 and 186,000. I really need to take a little class on how to read old accounts books. Oh my, yeah. so soldiers. can we just um, jump in there, Emily? Um, yes. For our listeners, uh, I will put this the link to this um, in our show notes on our podcast. But just so you know, uh, they're using commas where we might use decimals and vice versa uh, for just for starters. So 
please bear with us as we work our way through this. <laughs> There's also this like four forward line dash thing. And I have no idea what that means. I am assuming it means a range, but it might not. Mm -hmm. It might be a negative and a positive the way we would use parentheses. Ah, right, right. Um, so aid to families of soldiers, 16,000. U.S. surplus fund, sundry towns, 34,000. Payment of interest on various loans, 56,000. Payment of the loan of 1860, 15,000. Payment to agricultural societies, 1,232. Board of Education, 3,211. Special appropriations of legislature, 7,984. Hiram Harlow in state bonds, 8,000. Sundry purposes, 2,871. Making in all the sum of 1,218,259, which leaves a balance in the treasury of 224,000. The treasurer informed me that a large portion of this balance stands to the credit of the state, say 175,000, in the 41 banks in the state and the Suffolk Bank, Boston, the remainder being cash on hand, and that a considerable portion of this balance will be drawn upon for by the opening of the legislature. The action of the legislature of last year in providing for the payment of the extraordinary expenses incurred for the war purposes, partly by direct taxation and partly by issuing state bonds, appears to have been wise in principle. It would seem desirable to place a considerable portion of the appropriations necessary to be made for war expenses in the form of a funded debt. The people should not now be overburdened with taxation as in many ways, they have large sacrifices to make for the support of the government and the defense of the country. And our present sacrifices being even more for posterity than for others, we cannot doubt that those who come after us will be able and willing to share with us the burdens now involved. Olga skipped the word pecuniary, which I am only noticing because it is one of my very favorite words. And so the sentence reads, we cannot doubt that those who come after us will be able and willing to share with us the pecuniary burdens now involved. That just means related to money. Thank you. And thank you for <laughs> catching that, Emily. I was skipping it because I was just like, yeah, I don't even know where to start with that word. Yeah, Wait it's a, a great. <laughs> the whole amount of military expenditures for which orders have been drawn on the state treasurer by the present executive up to September 1st, 1862, as stated by the treasurer, is 186874 since that date and prior to October 1st, 1862, orders have been drawn for additional military expenses amounting to 5,114, making all the sum of 191,988. This amount is composed in general terms of the following classes of payments, state pays to soldiers of $7 per month from date of enlistment to date of muster in the US service, also pay of officers from date of commission to date of muster and expenses of paying, State pay due second regiment as certified commissioners of claims. I just want to notice. So I think that means that they are paid from when they join to when they actually go into service, at which point federal pay kicks in. Because I believe that date muster is like when you, I thought mustering is like when you actually go to war, right? Mm. That's interesting. Okay. Okay. Claims allowed by commissioners to settle outstanding claims. Equipment, medical aid, and stores furnished to the various regiments now in service and the amount expended for which has already been presented to the government and allowed. Equipment of 5th Regiment presented to commissioners. Four, equipment of regiments quite recently raised and expenses of recruiting and drilling all the troops raised by the past official year, the amount of which has not yet been presented to the government for allowance, but which is supposed to be collectible, 28000 and there remains a balance, perhaps mostly uncollectible, to be considered in the light of state expenses, which is included principally under the head of sundries in the abstract accompanying this communication of 8,000, making all the sum of 191,988. As an abstract, stating the above expenditures in some detail may be found in the appendix to this communication, to which reference is respectfully made. The advances mentioned under the fourth classification above would ere this date have been presented in proper form 
to the general government for adjustment and allowance, but for the many pressing official duties growing out of the raising of troops in answer to the call of government, which have occupied my time. It will afford me pleasure at any time to answer such questions as individual senators or representatives may desire to ask, whether in relation to matters spoken of in this communication or pertaining in any way to state affairs. And as it is certainly desirable that the General Assembly should fully understand how the public monies have been expended, I shall be pleased to exhibit to any committee appointed for the purpose the requisite accounts and vouchers readily and clearly to explain such expenditures. The condition of the state finances, September 1st, 1862, as appears from the report of the treasurer, is as, is as follows. Liabilities. Due banks for contributions to the safety fund, 13000 Due county treasurers, tax on non-resident stock, 2887 Balance due for U.S. surplus money, 7686 Balances estimated due to soldiers for state pay of $7 per month. Loans of 1859 due November 21st, 1864, 75000 Loans of April 1861, bonds issued payable 10 years from June 1st, 1860, $751,000. That's quite a sum. Loan of 1861 due October 1st, 1862, 20000 Loan of 1861 due 18 December 1st, 1862, 3000 Loan of 1861 due January 1st, 1863, 35,000. Balance and treasury due for allotment of soldiers, 57,000. The resources available are balance in and due to the treasury on demand, 224,250. Due on tax payable, June 1st, October 15th, 1862. So these are the expected revenues this next year. Right. 43,000. Due from Pulteney, HM Bates. Due from Pulteney, one million nine, sorry, one thousand, excuse me, nine hundred ninety-five hundred. Due from HM Bates, forty-eight thousand four hundred twenty-eight. Amount of bills of the state against the U.S. for war expenditures, six hundred eighty-nine thousand three hundred ninety-six, of which the general government has refunded forty percent, or two hundred seventy-five thousand, and has offset the state tax due to the U.S. In June, less 15%, 179000 So basically, the government is refunding some war expenses, and some of it is basically a tax credit. Right, right. That's interesting. Both sums am amounting to 454407 which is not the full sum due from the federal government, mm -hmm. which abstracted from the whole amount leaves a balance still due from the state, from the United States, of 234988 it will be readily seen from the above statement that the indebtedness of the state in excess of its resources is funded in state bonds payable in 10 years from June 1st, 1860. The expense of this current year cannot be accurately given, but so far as is now known, some of the more important unavoidable disbursements may be approximately estimated as follows. The three years troops now in service from Vermont, from Vermont composed 10 regiments of infantry and one regiment of cavalry, which at the maximum would number in all about 11,000 men. Two batteries of artillery, about 125 men each. Three companies of sharpshooters, about 90 men each, all totaling 11,520 men. That is the population of Brattleboro. Yes, it is. Making an all, but as considerable deductions should be made for missing men by reason of the various casualties of the service, suppose that one quarter of the above number or 2,880 2, men are deducted. We then have, wow. We then have 8,640 men, because if they pass away, we don't need to pay them. That's an aside, not part of the paragraph. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who shall be entitled to receive each the state pay of $7 per month, which for 12 months, should they continue in service for that period, will amount to 725720 The rank and file of the five regiments of militia recently raised amount to about 4,700 men, deducting one-eighth of this number for the diminution which may result from casualties of service. And we have 4,113 men, who should the legislature so decide will be entitled to receive each $7 per month from the state, which for their allotted period of service or nine months will amount to 259,119. Ordinary state expenses, about 250,000. Payment of a loan of 1857, 100,000, making the approximate estimate for costs for the future fiscal year, 
334,839. It may be necessary to pass it over to Olga to read the next paragraph. <laughs> it may be necessary during the current year to raise more troops in the state, which would, of course, increase current expenses. There may be another tax levied on the state by the United States, but probably the balance of 234988 still due from the United States will more than offset any tax thus levied. I respectfully recommend that suitable provision be made during the present session for the expenses of the current year. About, About the, the 20... I'll, I'll keep going because you've got more uh, uh, items to read. Oh, gosh. Okay. About the 20th of November, 1861, recruiting agencies were established for raising the 7th and 8th regiments of infantry and the 1st and 2nd batteries of artillery. These fine regiments and batteries went into camp early in January following the 7th Regiment at Rutland, the 8th Regiment and 1st Battery at Brattleboro, and the 2nd Battery at Lowell, Mass., the entire outfit of the 7th Regiment, excepting arms and accoutrements, was provided by the Quartermaster General of the state. The outfit of the 8th Regiment and of the 1st and 2nd Batteries of Artillery was, with a few exceptions, furnished by the General Government through the Department of New England. These regiments, together with the 1st Battery, left the state early in March last for Ship Island, Mississippi, to serve in the Department of the Gulf. The 2nd Battery left Lowell Mass for the same destination in February last. In the latter part of October, 1861, the 3rd Company of Sharpshooters, commanded by Captain Gilbert Hart, was organized and early in January, following, was sent to Washington. Also, in the month of December, 1861, the 1st Regiment of Vermont Cavalry, raised and commanded by Colonel Lemuel B. Platt, received marching orders and left Campton Burlington proceeding to Washington. During the months of February and March last, 412 men were recruited in the state to fill the thinned ranks of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th regiments of infantry. Early in April, they were mustered into service at Burlington, and on the 21st of that month, sent to their respective regiments, then at Yorktown, Virginia. In compliance with the request received by me from the Secretary of War, the following statement was forwarded to him by the Adjutant General, showing the number of three years troops furnished by the state and in the service of the United States on the 16th of April, 1862. The 2nd Regiment Infantry of Colonel Henry Whiting had 1,046 men. The 3rd Regiment Infantry of Colonel B.N. Hyde had 1,032. The 4th Regiment Infantry of E.H. Stoughton had 1,100. The 5th Regiment Infantry of H.A. Smalley had 1,018. The 6th Regiment Infantry of... Did I say H.L. Smalley yet? Yes, you did of N. Lord Jr. had 1,004, the 7th Regiment Infantry of G.O. of G.O. S. Roberts, 1,014, and the 8th Regiment Infantry of Stephen Thomas had 1,015. In the making of infantry, the 1st Regiment of Cavalry of Colonel L.B. Platt had 906, oh, sorry, that, I'm sorry, that was a sum. So, the, that makes an infantry total of 7,229 men. Okay. And then we have the regiments of cavalry, artillery, and sharpshooters. So the 1st Regiment of Cavalry, Colonel L.B. Platt mustered 965 people, men. The 1st Battery of Artil Artillery, Captain J.W. Duncan, 156. 2nd Battery of Artillery, P.U. Holcomb, somewhere between 129 and 285. We still don't know what that dash means. First Company Sharpshooters, Captain E. Weston Jr., 92. The second Company of Sharpshooters, Captain H.R. Stoughton, 97. And the third Company of Sharpshooters, Captain Gilbert Hart, 105 to 294, making a total 
which is a total that includes the past total and this new addition of 870, 8,773 men. On the 21st of May last, the Secretary of War called on Vermont for one regiment of infantry to be raised immediately, accompanied by a request to raise as, raise as many regiments thereafter as possible within a certain specified time. Under this call of the 9th Regiment of Infantry was raised and was ordered into camp at Brattleboro. But before it was fully organized, and about the 1st of July last, the call was issued by the President of the United States for 300,000 three-year troops. And the call of the Secretary of War, made in May, for 50,000 three-years men, under which the raising of the 9th Regiment commenced, was merged in the larger number required by the President. The, <clears throat> the 9th Regiment left camp for Washington on the 15th of July and was the first regiment furnished by any state under the calls first for 50,000 and second for 300,000 three-year troops. Early in July last, recruiting agents were appointed for raising the 10th and 11th regiments of infantry. The state was divided into 20 districts. A principal recruiting officer appointed in each with directions to raise a full company of men, which in nearly every district was accomplished. These two regiments went into camp at Brattleboro between the 10th and 16th of August. Fort Dummer. Oh, right. Maybe. I thought anyway, that was used earlier than. than oh, yeah. Keep on going. Sorry. That We're going to add that to our historian question list. Yeah. The 10th Regiment left camp for Washington on the 6th and the 11th Regiment on the 7th of September last. 1,203 years men for the old regiments were also recruited, mostly in the month of August last, and were sent to fill companies in those regiments more or less diminished by the casualties of service. These men were ordered to Burlington for muster and to receive their advance pay and bounty, and each man was allowed to designate the company and regiment in which he would prefer to serve. The men have been sent forward from Burlington to their respective regiments in detachments of from two to three hundred men each. The quota of men under the call for 300,000 three years men was made up as follows. In the 19th, 10th, and 11th regiments, there were about 3,000 men. For filling old regiments, there were 1,200 men. Raised under the call for 500,000 men, there were 373 men. The quota due under something that I don't understand, 3,100 men, which subtracted from the number actually raised leaves an excess to be credited of, credited of 673 men. These add to the numbers actually raised under the call for 300,000 three years men make 4,873. On the 4th of August last, a call was issued by order of the President of the United States for a draft of 300,000 militia, accompanied by order specifying the time and directing the mode of the draft. Immediately on receiving this call, an order was issued by the state authorities of Vermont calling out the organized companies of militia in the state to serve for the period of nine months in the service of the United States, directing them to fill their ranks to the legal standard and authorizing them to receive into their ranks the quota of adjacent towns till the company should reach the maximum of 101 men each. An order was also issued for a new enrollment of the militia of the state preparatory to a draft on the 1st of September should a draft become necessary. And this order was accompanied by a proposition to the people of Vermont that if they should so elect, they might furnish the quota of the state, 4,898 men by voluntary action, town officers and patriotic citizens raising the quotas of their respective towns in their way and adjacent towns combining their several quotas in companies of 101 men each which companies on being tendered to the state authorities in lieu of drafted men would be accepted as such, provided a proper role accompanied by the tender, giving the names and residences of the men 
and binding them by a suitable contract to serve for the period of nine months in lieu of drafting militia, receiving the pay of militia, and subject to the rules and regulations governing militia in the service of the United States. Sorry, I'm going so fast. Knowing that the people of Vermont are proverbial for the prompt, thrifty, economical, and efficient management of their affairs, I thought it proper to make them such a proposition, leaving them to raise the requisite number of men wholly in their own way, not doubting that the business would be accomplished with system, order, and decorum. It is well known how promptly they accepted the proposition and that 50 companies or five regiments of nine months volunteers in lieu of the drafted militia were raised in about 30 days and that two after our state with a population of about 315,000 had furnished about 13,000 three years troops for the war. This result is a remarkable demonstration of the unity, patriotic enthusiasm, indomitable and unconquerable spirit of a free people when their country is imperiled and calls for their service in its defense and the record of their action in this case will be to their honor and credit so long as the page of history endures. It is true that many perplexities had to be encountered and difficulties surmounted growing out of the imperfect returns on which the act both of the state authorities and the people necessary had to be based inasmuch as their positivity was not time to make thorough corrections of either former or recent returns on which the action both of the state authorities and the people necessary had necessarily had to be based inasmuch as their positively was not time to make thorough corrections to either former or recent returns. The report of the adjunct adjunct and inspector general will delve more fully on these perplexities and difficulties, but the general result is so credible to the state that we may all with candor and good feeling review the ground and be satisfied with the result, the very difficulties experienced heightening its value and effect. About 12,000 troops have been raised in the state since October 1861. The details of recruiting, organizing, subsisting, clothing, arming, equipping, paying, and transporting them have been numerous and productive of many cares, responsibilities, perplexities, and embarrassments. Considerable delay has been experienced in getting the regiments of nine months men into camp, owing to the inability of the general government to furnish the requisite clothing, arms, and camp equipage with dispatch from the fact that so large a number of fresh troops had suddenly been called into service. Requisitions were early made on the quartermaster general of the army for clothing, arms, accoutrement, and camp and garrison equipage. But in place of clothing, the materials therefore were sent forward with the request that the quartermaster general of the state should contract for the making of the clothing in the state for which certain specified prices would be paid by the general government. The tents ordered could not be supplied and therefore the general government directed barracks to be erected and sent an agent into the state who contracted with certain parties to build them agreeably to specifications furnished by him. The original design of having the five regiments remain a while together in camp in the state was modified by subsequent events and the state authorities were requested to send them forward a regiment at a time at the earliest practicable moment. Accordingly, one regiment has been forwarded and the remaining four will be sent as expeditiously as they can be prepared for marching orders. The rank and file of the 12th Regiment, which is composed of companies of the uniformed militia, are, by an act entitled, an act providing pay for the uniformed militia, approved April 26, 1861, clearly entitled to the state pay of $7 per month, in addition to their United States pay while in active service. But as there is perhaps room for doubt whether the soldiers of the other four regiments of militia are, or are not, entitled to $7 per month from the state, in addition to the United States pay, I respectfully suggest that the doubt should be immediately and clearly solved by some definite action of the legislature. Perhaps the act entitled an act providing pay for certain soldiers in relation to the support of families or volunteers, approved November 20th, 1861, 
does secure the payment of $7 per month to these troops. But it would be well for the legislature to make some specific declaration to this regard. In accordance with the directions of an act entitled An Act to Appoint Commissioners to Adjust and Settle Certain Outstanding Claims for Expenditures for Military Purposes, approved November 20th, 1861, and of an act entitled An Act Providing for the Immediate Settlement and Allowance of Claims in Favor of this State Against the United States, approved November 21st, 1861, I appointed Honorable F.E. Woodbridge, Honorable George F. Edmonds, and Colonel George A. Merrill, a Board of Commissioners, with instructions to carry out the purposes contemplated by these two acts. Early in December last, the commissioners gave notice of times and places for the presentation and adjustment of such claims. For each claim allowed, the commissioners gave a certificate indicating the amount thereof and to whom payable, for which, on presentation, an order was drawn by me on the treasurer of the state in favor of such claimant. The aggregate amount of the claims so allowed was 25091 the commissioners also made up the account of monies expended by, by my predecessor in raising, organizing, subsisting, clothing, arming, equipping, and transporting troops for service under the United States. Providing and arranging all necessary vouchers, therefore, and causing such vouchers to be recorded at length on books prepared for that purpose, which were afterward lodged in the office of the Secretary of State. The commissioners subsequently proceeded to Washington and presented the account and vouchers to the Department of Treasury for adjustment and allowance. In October 1861, I appointed a board of medical examiners for the examination of candidates for the Office of Surgeons of Regiments, consisting of Samuel Thayer, Jr., Dr., Dr. Edward E. Phillips, M.D., and Charles L. Allen, M.D., who have attended faithfully to the duties of their appointment. Agreeably to an act entitled An Act in Relation to to supplies of Vermonters approved November 21st, 1861, directing the governor under certain conditions to supply the volunteers from the state in the service of the United States from time to time as their circumstances require with clothing, tents, camp equipage, arms, equipments, provisions, medicines, and all articles required in the medical department. I authorized the quartermaster general to furnish rubber blankets whenever needed by our troops, new tents for the third regiment, which were much needed, and medicines and medical stores for the Vermont Brigade, which was suffering from sickness in camp near the Potomac. A statement of the expenses of these supplies appears in the appendix to this communication. I also appointed Edward E. Phelps, MD, State Medical Commissioner, to visit the Vermont Brigade during the late autumn and early winter, when so much sickness prevailed therein, and advise with the regimental surgeons as to the treatment of the prevailing mal maladies, and report to me what further should be done to alleviate the suffering and promote the health of the troops. At his suggestion, medical supplies were purchased and forwarded by the Quartermaster General, and three additional assistant surgeons were sent to the brigade for three months' service to aid the overtasked regimental surgeons. Dr. Phelps was subsequently appointed by the War Department Surgeon of the Vermont Brigade. It is believed that much benefit resulted to our troops from these provisions for their relief. The expenses incurred will be presented to the general government for payment. In October last, agreeably to a joint resolution of the legislature, I appointed Honorable Joseph Holland, special agent, to visit the camps of the Vermont regiments on the Potomac to receive such portions of the wages of the troops recently paid them by government as they might desire to transmit to their families in Vermont. The expenses of this agency appear in the financial statements appended to this communication. The duties of the agency were faithfully performed. Afterwards, in, and in compliance with the purposes contemplated in Section 3, of the act entitled An Act for the Aid of the Vermont Volunteers in Transmitting Portions of Their Pay to Their Families and Assignees, approved November 20th, 1861, I appointed Messrs. M-E-S-S-R-S, -S -S Messengers, John B. Page and John Howe, Jr., 
commissioners to visit the camps of the Vermont troops and explain the allotment system to them and induce them to allot a portion of their pay to their families or agents in Vermont. Soon, after the arrival of these commissioners in camp, the President of the United States states, by, by then recent provision of Congress, appointed them together with Honorable Joseph Polland, which, sorry, Honorable stands for judge, uh, commissioners, to perform the duties contemplated by the previous appointment by me. But as Page and Howe had incurred expenses under their appointment by me, I deemed it just and proper to refund them their expenses. In December last, I hope that there is a single person still listening to this <laughs> in the world. In December last, Colonel Frank E. Howe of the city of New York was appointed and commissioned military agent of Vermont in that city. He has well performed the duties of his agency. His services have been literally indispensable to the state in many ways. On accepting his commission from the state, he prescribed that his services were to be gratuitously rendered. But so many calls have been made upon him, especially in ministering to our sick and wounded men and in furnishing from time to time a complete record of the names, residences, condition, et cetera, of our soldiers in the New York hospitals, that I respectfully recommend that he be liber liberally rewarded by the state. So he was first doing his work um, in a volunteer capacity, and now there's a request that he be paid. Finding that many of our sick and wounded soldiers were being sent by government to the hospitals in and near Philadelphia, I recently appointed Mr. Robert R. Corson of that city, military agent of Vermont, to exercise a friendly care for such Vermont soldiers as might be there placed. Mr. Corson is a kind-hearted philanthropic gentleman who delights in thus contributing to the necessities of the great cause of the country and does not claim anything like a compensation for his labor, being content with the bare reimbursement of actual expense. Almost immediately upon assuming the executive office, I perceived that it would be impossible for me to discharge the duties in detail imposing upon the governor by an act entitled an act to provide for the families of citizens of Vermont mustered into the service of the United States approved April 26, 1861. I accordingly appointed Mr. John Howe Jr. of Brandon agent to perform the services required by that law his acts to be subject to direct and approval by me, in direction and approval by me. I believe Mr. Howe has discharged the duties of his appointment admirably, reducing the business of that agency to a just and wise system. I have the pleasure of calling your attention to his lucid and valuable report here within transmitted. Some further legislation to perfect the objects contemplated by the act referred to seems to be quite desirable and is indicated in Mr. Howe's report. I respectively, respectively ask your attention to the subject. During the past During, year, oh, go ahead. During the past year, the demands upon the adjutant and inspector general and the quartermaster general have been such as to require the devotion of nearly their entire time to the service of the state. It's certainly my duty, as it is my pleasure, to bear testimony to the ability and faithfulness with, with which they have performed the responsible and arduous duties of their respective offices. As the salaries allowed by statute to these officers, based on their ordinary duties in times of peace, offer no adequate compensation for the extraordinary labors now demanded of them, I respectfully suggest that they be compensated for the services they have rendered. Full and clear reports to these, by these officers of the transactions in their respective departments during the past official year would have been ready for transmission to the legislature at the opening of the present session, but for the very onerous duties which have recently engaged and do still demand their whole attention. The reports, however, will soon be laid before you. It is proper for me to say that the state is indebted to the Secretary of Civil and Military Affairs for faithful and in fatigable attention to the important duties of his office. He has devoted his time to those duties and should be suitably compensated, compensated, therefore. I may remark further that I am under many obligations to the gentlemen of my staff for their assistance in the transaction of the business of the executive department. Agreeably, 
to an act entitled An Act for the Better Protection of the Treasury, I appointed Honorable Judge W. Stewart of Middlebury, Inspector of Finance, but owing to the engagements he felt compelled to decline the appointment, and Charles W. Bradbury, Esquire of Vergennes, was appointed to the office and has attended to its duties. At the session of the General Assembly in 1860, the Honorable Milo L. Bennett, the Honorable Pierpoint Isham, or Isham, and the Honorable Andrew Tracy were appointed a board of commissioners to revise, redraft, compile, consolidate, and arrange the public statutes of the state on the basis, basis plain and general form and method of revised, revised statutes, with authority to admit redundant enactments, rejects super, superfluous, I can never say that, words, securitous and ambiguous phraseology, recommend amendments, and condense the whole into as concise and comprehensive form as is consistent with a full and clear expression of the le legislature and report the same to the General Assembly. And the Act of 1860 was so far amended by the Act of 1861 as to require the report of the commissioners to be made to the governor. Accordingly, the chairman of the board has transmitted to me a copy of the revision prepared and printed for us for the use of the General Assembly, accompanied with a written report explanatory of the course pursued and making the revision which will be submitted to you at an early day. Under the Act of Congress of May 23rd, 1850, this state was entitled to two members in the House of Representatives of the 38th Congress. On the 26th of March last, I received a communication from the Department of the Interior informing me that a law was enacted on the 4th of March, 1862, increasing the number of representatives for certain states, including the state of Vermont, whereby that state is entitled to three representatives in the 38th and subsequent Congress. We have gone down in the world. Oh my gosh. Our recent experience in endeavoring to raise troops under the present militia laws of the state proves beyond a doubt the immediate need of some important changes in those laws. Perhaps that complete and well-proportioned militia system which shall embody the permanent policy of the state will be the work of a future time. When we can avail ourselves of the experience and suggestions of many able officers now in active service, but at least the present laws should be so far amended as to secure a perfect enrollment of all able-bodied men liable to do military duty and a thorough and impartial medical inspection of all enrolled men. And to this end, competent medical board should be established in each county. No board, however, performing its functions in the county in which it is raised, but in some other county remote enough to ensure an impartial inspection. My time has been so constantly occupied with the numerous details of business involved in the military operations of the state that I've been not able to give that attention to our public institutions and benevolent and educational enterprises which it would have been my pleasure to bestow. The practical workings of our educational system have been somewhat observed, observed, and I am induced to think that no important changes are needed or would at the present time conduce to the interests of education in Vermont. I have a high appreciation of the value of the services of the Secretary of the Board of Education. And I believe that the, if the operations of the board as conducted by him are allowed to proceed, they will soon ripen into a permanent well-proportioned system finally adapted to the customs as a, as a people and our peculiar circumstances and wants. The Asylum for the Insane continues in its hitherto prosperous condition, dispensing healing balm to many a troubled mind or affording a quiet, well-ordered retreat to minds permanently disordered. The reports of the trustees and superintendent indicate the condition and progress of the institution. The state prison has been well managed. It is the good fortune of the state to have the superintendent of the prison, a gentleman of acknowledged humanity, of much practical sagacity and sound judgment, and of decided character. The bearing and influence of such a person are always beneficial and especially salutary, salutary, sorry, in the position occupied by the superintendent of the prison. 
the bank commissioner appointed at the last session of the legislature, having resigned his office, I appointed Mr. Jerry E. Dickerman, his successor, though whose report upon the condition of the banks of the state will be before you. It appears from that report that these institutions have been well conducted during the past fiscal year. It will not escape your attention that among the duties that devolve upon the legislature at the present session well conducted during the past fiscal year. It will not escape your attention that among the duties that devolve upon the legislature at the present session is that of electing a person to represent the state in the Senate of the United States for the term of six years from the 4th of March next on which day the existing term of Honorable Solomon Foote will expire. Huh. Interesting. Yes. It is an occasion for renowned congratulation, renewed congratulation that the people of Vermont have again shown their devotion to the cause of the union by laying aside almost unanimously all considerations of a partisan character and uniting in the earnest support of the national government, which is charged with the high duty of defending and maintaining that sacred cause. The position of Vermont in this great life struggle of the nation can neither be questioned nor misunderstood. The blood of her sons has reddened many battlefields, and their valor and endurance have vindicated her historical renown. Her people admit no thought of concession to or compromise with the causeless and wicked rebellion now striking at the vitals of the nation, and their determination is fixed to endure and fight and sacrifice till the government established by the wisdom, the patriotism, and the blood of our fathers is restored in its beneficent and rightful sway over every portion of our union. The struggle in which the nation is engaged is clearly one of life or death, even though the scenes of blood and the night of calamity through which we may be called to pass shall shake the land to its foundation and try us to the utmost. Yet, trusting in the God of our fathers, we will not doubt that life is to be the result and that the nation is to be purified by its trials and established and exalted even beyond the expectations of its founders. Our fathers found a great evil, which they deplored, but could not separate from the good. Current events are tending to produce that separation by uprooting the evil. The rebellion, if persisted in, in may be the means, under providence of annihilate, annihilating the institution of slavery, which all acknowledge to have been its cause. The territory of the United States must be preserved in its integrity. Neither foreign power nor domestic insurrection can be allowed to establish a rival government within any portion of that territory. And therefore, all necessary means justified by the ultimate law of self-preservation and compatible with Christian civilization must be applied to the permanent suppression of the present rebellion. The recent proclamation of emancipation by the President of the United States is a logical result of the slaveholders' rebellion, and as such, it is accepted and will be sustained by all loyal men. It is a military necessity and has the recommendation to our people of according with both justice and humanity. Gentlemen of the Senate and House of Representatives, Grave and weighty responsibilities rest upon us in this great crisis. Let us show ourselves equal to our duties. Whatever we have to do, let us do it with one heart and one mind. However humble, we are a part of the American Union and have a vital interest in its preservation. It is a union consecrated to freedom and it falls to our lot and that of our generation to prove the ability of free men to defend and preserve their birthright. Our institutions are passing through a baptism of blood they must and will be maintained at whatever sacrifice. And in the momentous issue which is upon us, neither temporary reverses will discourage nor partial successes unduly elate us. Relying on the uncontrovertible justice of our cause, the bravery, patriotism, and intelligence of the soldiers of the Union, the unconquerable determination and the spirit of American liberty actuating the loyal people of the country, we may confidently look forward to and patiently await the time when our beloved Republic under the providence of God shall be reestablished in unity and power and afford a triumphant vindication of the capacity of a free people to govern themselves. Frederick Holbrook in the executive chamber, Montpelier, October 10th, 1862.
Whew. That was quite a speech. A lot of words. A lot of words, like you said, could be have edited a bit. Um, uh, like, like you said, political speeches, they always have way too many words. Um, I find, I chose this speech though, even though I saw how long it was, I didn't know it would take that much for us to get through it. But I thought the opening and ending was really intriguing to me as pieces of, as a piece of its time. And to contrast it with Thomas Chittenden, where Vermont was um, fighting for, in his mind, I think, fighting for its identity to be recognized as a state. And now you have this governor looking at Vermont as a piece of the, of the United States that had to fight for its identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just found that an interesting um, theme between the two, the two governors and what they were working with at that time. I also feel for me on a personal level, going through that number of troops that Vermont was sending, you mentioned once that uh, one total came to more than, or about the, the population of Brattleboro, but you look at a lot of the numbers and they were more than many of the towns in Wyndham County, mm -hmm. the population of those towns. And so it was just, brought home to me what those towns must have looked like when that much of their population was not there. Uh, that must have been such a, a sea change for, for those communities. One of the things I was struck by similar to that is that it is really so difficult to maintain the humanity of the people involved when you're speaking in budgetary numbers. Yes. Um, and how we were, you know, there was that one section about how the estimates of cost took into account the losses of life. And um, that tension between needing to sort of clearly communicate what's happening and remember essentially the sacred experience of each of those people that were lost or were going off to war. Um, yeah, that really, and that is a challenge even when we talk about our budget today, you know, we're not talking about people going off to war, but we're talking about people who are hungry. We are talking about people who don't have homes. We're talking about people that were incarcerating and, um, or even when we talk about public pensions, you know, costs go up when people have better health and they go down when people don't. Um, it's just, it's a wild, it's a wild piece of public budgeting. You know, we just have a few moments left. Um, but one thing that seemed particularly relevant to the moment that we're in right now is that very little other governing was possible for this mm -hmm. governor, given that we were in a state of crisis and emergency. And I'm so struck by, you know, that that was true during the COVID pandemic yes. and that we are in danger of that happening again with flood response. Mm -hmm. But things still need to go on. We still have, you know, mentally ill people experiencing incarceration in our prisons. We still have people who didn't have homes before the flooding. Um, we still have a school system that has children who are struggling in it. Um, and so, especially in these times when there's always a crisis um, and our sort of, you know, our crises seem to be compressing a little bit. Um, we need to be able to both govern and respond. Yes. Yes. I, I was thinking in during this speech when I had first looked at it, that that tension between responding and reacting and that immediate term, taking care of, like you said, the immediate crisis versus the long-term prosperity of, of a people. And uh, I think what struck me a little bit in that was two places. One where he was talking about how there hadn't been enough coming from the federal government in terms of like blankets and tents and medicine. And mm -hmm. so he, 
they were contracting with people within the state to provide some of these things. And then also when he was talking about one of the commissioners going down to talk to troops and say, do you want to allot some of this money of yours to go home? You know, to make sure that there was still money going back into the community and into families. Mm -hmm. It it just, um, for some reason in my mind, that struck to me that that short-term reaction versus long-term response uh, in, in crises. Mm-hmm. For you going through, you know, um, you. How? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, honey. I think I froze. Oh, um, I noticed that we both smiled at this section. Um, the when the federal government asked um, for a certain number of troops, he allowed that each community should figure that out for themselves because he, you know. And that is just still such a very Vermont thing to do, um, both in the then it doesn't have to be the state's problem, essentially, uh-huh. but it also makes people feel so good and trusted. It's really a. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I can imagine at that time when there wasn't the immediate communication that we have now. Mm-hmm. that letting people figure it out themselves probably also had a very practical side of if things moved faster. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. What did you think at the end when he was talking about the Emancipation Proclamation and the Civil War specifically as, as um, you know, in terms of slavery and identity and uh, fighting evil? Um, I felt proud of us. I... Um... I know from a little bit of my own understanding of Vermont history that it was not, um, that it was much more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Our sort of internal attitudes towards slavery. Mm -hmm. But um, I was glad to see how sort of unequivocal he was in um, being on the side of justice. Yeah, I'll I'll say in, in a way that surprised me a little bit uh, only because it often feels to me that that clarity was something on, on social justice and racial justice that came later, um, which was actually kind of silly of me because for people to, to fight the war in the moment, they had to have strong beliefs around it, mm-hmm. you know, around slavery, around um, identity and, and everything that he was talking about in this speech. Uh, so that was perhaps a little silly on me, of me on my part. But uh, any other thoughts before we let listeners go back to their their day? Um, I would just like to appreciate any listener that is still with us at this moment in our show. And um, say that if anyone did have reflections about, you know, the parallels that they find between what happened then i noticed some familiar names even oh, um yeah. please please be in touch you know you know how to find us in the happy hour you can find me at emilykornheiser.org um also the views and opinions expressed here in the montpelier happy hour are those of the host and the guests including the guests who are long gone <laughs> and um, not the station I also want to thank the Brattleboro Community Television, BCTV, for broad sharing these videos with other stations around Vermont. And uh, we will be back on Friday on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, and uh, rebroadcast on Wednesday. So take care, everyone. Thank you for bearing with us. And I hope this is shaking up some thoughts around Vermont and identity and all the crises and transitions that we go through as um, a community. Take care.